0: Hello, we're back. It's been a little while, but we've got lots of new podcast material coming for you over the next few weeks and months. Um, for now, please enjoy an interview with the one and only James Wallace that we recorded over the summer. Welcome to the tabletop gaming magazine podcast. I'm Chris Eggett, the editor of the magazine. And today I'm joined by the one and only James Wallace. Good morning. <laughs> How are you doing, James?
1: Ah, uh, very well. Very well. Beautiful day. Um, having fun. Uh, taking a, taking a break from work to do this. So, yeah. uh, uh, everything everything fine. Yeah, and
0: thank, you, and thank you very much for taking the time. Um, so today we're going to try and talk about uh, well, a couple of things. But we're going to try and talk about um, game mechanics as a concept because I think a lot of people outside the hobby, uh, if they if they pick up the magazine, will mention mechanics that maybe they don't necessarily immediately understand or Uh, they have to have a guess at Um, and then we uh, usually they're right to be honest because they're quite self-descriptive so uh, we're just hopefully going to sort of enlighten people about what we're talking about when we yeah what we talk about when we talk about mechanics so shall we start with the easy one the, the broad one of what is a what is a game mechanic
1: it's a really good question i've been among other things i've been teaching people how to design board games for a number of years and it's one of those questions like what is a role-playing game that you know you know in your head what what the answer is but it's really difficult to express simply and concisely the game mechanics are the the principles and the little algorithms and systems that make games work that you put together to make games work um principles of play the building blocks of play there is in fact a book that came out last year called the building blocks of tabletop game design an encyclopedia of mechanisms <laughs> by jeff engelstein and isaac Sh- uh, shalev i have no idea how to pronounce it i'm going to pronounce it shalev though it may well be shalev um and it's literally literally an encyclopedia of game mechanics and it's aimed at, at academics um and it. Describes something like 130 different game mechanics and then breaks them down into kind of sub mechanics and ways that they're used in different games Um, That's kind of that's the theoretical version in in practice You can take any game and break it down into its constituent mechanics And some of these are ones that people talk about an awful lot particularly in the current climate like um, Deck building a deck building game where you start off with a small number of cards and add cards to that as the game goes on Um, card drafting which is a way of you know selecting the cards in your hand uh, rather than just drawing randomly. Um, those are phrases that you you'll read about an awful lot. But if you go back to the very simplest games, games like Ludo and Snakes and Ladders, you can break those down very simply into their constituent mechanics. Um, some of which have very obvious names: roll and move. You roll the dice, <laughs> you move your piece. Roll and that's what a roll and move game. And the moment you know the name of that, you can go, oh, well, there's so many other games that do that. Monopoly also does that. Cluedo does that. Many of the classic games, the Roll and Move Trivial Pursuit is a roll and move game. It's not. It's a trivia game. But it uses the roll and move mechanic. So people will say Snakes and Ladders is a roll and move game because that's the dominant mechanic. That's mostly what you do in the game. Other Snakes and Ladders mechanics, you've also got one that I don't think has a name, but play passing to the left that's a game mechanic. It's just, Mm. it's one of the ways that you play a game. And you think, well, all games do that. Well, they don't. There are many other ways of play passing. People move some of the, people do everything simultaneously. Um, people do stuff in real time. Uh, one of my games, once upon a time, play passes to whoever interrupts the person who's currently (laughs) speaking. Um, it's, so it's not a universal. There are very few games mechanics that appear all the time, but play passing to the left is just one of those. It's a, It's almost just something that we do Um, and also in Snakes and Ladders, you've got the... I'm blanking on the name of this one. Basically, you land on a space and the space tells you what to do. In this case, if you land at the bottom of a ladder, you go up. If you land at the top of a snake, you go down. So the board determines what comes next. Mm. I mean, Snakes and Ladders is interesting because... for many reasons, but not least because there are no tactics in it at all. It's an entirely random game. You roll the dice, you do what the board tells you. It's all on the luck of the dice. Um, and some people hate it for that reason, but small kids get a huge kick out of it. There is a little bit of magic in Dice. Um, So once you understand kind of the principle of, well, that's what a mechanic is, you can take any game and you can take it apart and go, okay, there's this bit and there's this bit and there's this bit. And once you know the names for the bits and you don't have to drop 60 quid on the building blocks of tabletop Game Design, (laughs) if you go to Board Game Geek, in fact, if you just Google... Board Game Geek game mechanics, you will get their list of game mechanics with hyperlinks to little descriptions and the notable games that use those mechanics. And there's all kinds of stuff that you will have seen in a bunch of games, but you didn't know how to name, like modular boards. Mm-hmm. You know, you put the board together in a different way. Settlers of Catan is the big example of that, but there's so many others. <coughs> Um, And different ways of playing the game, dexterity games, where it's about um, your physical dexterity rather than necessarily skills and tactics. Mm. Um, As I say, there's about 130 of these. A lot of them break down. Uh, The Building Blocks of Tabletop Game Design, the article I found most interesting, it is not a book that you would read for fun. I have to (laughs) admit it's very dry. But there's an article on auctions in games, mm. uh, you know, in components, and breaks down all the different ways that you can run an auction in games. So there's like, I think, 13 or 16 different examples. It's, if you are a games designer, if you're a games scholar, if you just got a good games collection, it's really interesting. The, the level of scholarship in there is, is quite extraordinary. They clearly have massive, massive collections.
0: That sounds really good. I might, I you know, you, you say... Uh, you might not read it for fun. I might read it for fun. It sounds great. Uh,
1: <laughs> it's, the, the writing style is a little bit... Um, it's interesting because it's, um, Engelstein's done, done some other stuff that's um, a lot more... The writing is much much more lively. This is a book... It's it's written for academics. It's yeah. written not exactly in academic ease. No. And I used to be a university lecturer, so this is a a, a language I'm more than familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, it has that dryness. It's It's written, I think, to be quoted in academic papers. Rather than it's a tool part of a toolkit for for games designers.
0: What I like about talking about mechanics is kind of what happened there. As you listed things, my brain was going, "Yes, that one. I like that one." You know, because I find a mechanic that I haven't seen before, or something I've not seen implemented in the way that it's implemented in the game. Um, I then want to find every other game that does the same thing. And just mm. understand it as a set of things. I think that's why, like, understanding mechanics is quite useful because it lets you know what you like.
1: Yes, yeah. yes. absolutely. I mean, just simply putting names to things is enormously powerful. Um, I'm doing a talk about this actually. There's a, a virtual <laughs> Austrian games convention coming up in a couple <laughs> of weeks where I'm, I've been invited to guest, which is to say that I will still be sitting in my shed, uh, but um, you know, just you know, so there'll be a slightly longer delay on the. Uh, on, on the recording, um, but yes, and I, I'm talking about the importance of naming stuff. Because if oh, I can, I can blow my own trumpet here. Back in the mid '90s, uh, myself and a friend, Andrew Rilston, co-published. I published, he edited a magazine, or, of almost an academic journal, except we weren't academics, called Interactive Fantasy, mm-hmm. in which we were looking at basically how to break games down and how they work and what we call things and games mechanics. People. There was some talk of this kind of thing and some names, but there was no real kind of methodology to it. It wasn't broken down. And for our second issue, um, a chap called Craig Kostikian, a name you may know, he's less of an active board game designer these days, but he was enormously notable in the 80s and 90s. In particular, he wrote the Paranoia RPG. He wrote the Star Wars RPG um, and did an awful lot of notable work for, for SPI and then went off and did some fantastic work in the early days of multiplayer online gaming. Um, enormously clever guy and he did a an article called i have no words and i Must Design towards a critical vocabulary and he was basically saying what we need are terms to describe what it is that we do and how these things work and various people tried to put vocabularies together and they didn't quite work at that point because we weren't quite sure what it was we were trying to describe these days there's we, we can break down any game mechanic. And the moment a new game mechanic appears, and they do not appear very often, mm. um, the most notable example really is um, a few years back uh, when Dominion came out, the first game proper deck building game. It's not the first deck building game, Magic the Gathering is the first deck building game, but Magic the Gathering didn't put deck building front and center in what it did. Dominion is all about the process of building up your deck from cards. And the industry basically leapt on deck building as they had leapt on collectible card games um, 10 years or so previously with Magic. There was just this feeding frenzy. And um, now deck building is just part of the vocabulary of game design and you can integrate it or not, or to a greater or lesser degree, in, in your games. And I would, the analogy I use too much is that game design is like being a cook, really. It's, you're, you're working with a finite pool of existing ingredients, which is what the game mechanics are, but you are combining them in different ways and in different orders and in different combinations, which, thank you, thanks to mathematics, that gives us an almost infinite possibility of, of new stuff that you can build into, into games. Um, Collaborative games, cooperative games, where everyone's working together. This is not a new principle. Mm. Um, I wrote a book with Ian Livingston uh, last year, the year before, called Board Games in 100 Moves, and we tracked a bunch of things down. And most people think the first cooperative games were um, early 2000s or late 90s. And then people go, oh, wait, what about uh, what about Escape from Coldits, which isn't entirely cooperative, but has all the players Acting as the Allied soldiers, except for one player who's a German. So actually, it's a it's a a one versus many game. Mm -hmm. But the the early principles of co-op gaming is there. But then somebody pointed out there was a Thunderbirds game in Mm the mid '60s that was everyone working together to say you know to stop disasters destroying the world or whatever it was. I have never seen a copy. It is apparently (laughs) rubbish. This is not the same. No, this is not. We should say the same as uh, Matt Leacock's thunderbirds game from a few years ago for modiphius um it's interesting you track this stuff back and it goes as i say deck building did not start with dominion it started with magic the gathering and probably someone's got an example earlier than that that i'm not aware of but back then back in the 80s and the 90s we were still we were essentially working in the blind in, in working blind working in the dark because we didn't have names for these things and we kind of we we understood the principles almost on an organic level but we didn't it was very difficult to talk about them. It was very difficult to think about something if you don't have a name for it, if you can't. uh, Names kind of contain things um, and let you manipulate the concepts much more easily. I should just say, incidentally, Mm. uh, if anyone's interested in interactive fantasy, all the copies are up for free on Uh, DriveThruRPG. You can download. We only did four issues because we're losing money on each one. Um, But there is some really interesting stuff in there by some really... Great writers mm-hmm. Greg Stickins have no words on this design has gone on to become a modern classic It's it's still out there people. Um, it appears on university syllabuses and stuff like that um, Greg Stafford's in there Jonathan tweet who was the lead uh, designer on Dungeons Dragons third edition Loads and loads of, of good people.
0: I was just thinking Because um, you, you mentioning magic the gathering there. It's like Because um, now we wouldn't call magic the gathering deck building would we we might call it like no. deck construction? Yes. And that's because deck building kind of muscled in and sort of nudged, yeah. nudged it across. And it, it is this thing of, like, these broad terms get eaten by their more specific sort of children, basically. Yes. You know? um, I, think, I think I was just trying to name these things at all. In terms of new stuff, new mechanics, I'm going I'm to show my massive ignorance now. I'm going to have a guess of what the, what the newest mechanic in gaming is, what it feels like. And I'm going to be wrong. And I'm going to say,
1: is it legacy? I think Legacy, Legacy is certainly the the one that's hit fairly big. Mm -hmm. And I mean, is is it a mechanic or simply kind of the way that you deal with the game? Mm. But the idea that elements of the game persist from session to session is, as far as I know, dates back to Rob Daviau um, and Risk Legacy, um, which is a a monumental work, an extraordinary work. The fact Mm -hmm. that Hasbro of all people were prepared to take a risk like that on one of their crown jewels to do this genuinely astonishingly forward in, in games design the idea that you physically change you physically alter the structure of the game each time you play it to turn it into something completely different i'm not aware of any examples before um risk legacy i mean i, mean, I think there are there are smaller examples uh from that and the one i I talk about a lot. I talk about this game way too much. Uh, Wolfgang Walsh's is the mind, of course, um, which is a very simple game. It's mm-hmm. basically it's a game of talking, uh, uh, trying to play out a sequence of cards from one to one hundred uh, without talking to the other players. And it's hard to know exactly what the mechanic that's new in there is, but it makes me feel unlike. It gives me a, a sensation that I've never felt in games before mm-hmm. as I play it. And this is something this is also something I talk about too much. We do not have any terms or any vocabulary for the way that games make us feel, for the reactions that particular mechanics imbue on us. And we know that games mechanics and particular ones do cause us to feel in particular ways, because that's how the gambling industry works. <laughs> gambling has refined this to an, I'm not going to say art form, because it, it could be an art form if so. It's a very grubby one. But, you know, you look at free-to-play games, you look at, in particular, gambling apps on the internet. They are refined to within mic- micromillimeters, uh, nanometers, to optimize engagement and repetition and to keep you there throwing your money at this because it makes you feel in a particular way that you want to repeat Um there's a lot less of that kind of thinking in board games and role-playing games and tabletop gaming generally. I think Warhammer's got it. Um, mm. I don't know if they know they've got it. <laughs> I think a lot of games kind of hit it by accident. Um, and again, because we don't have these these terms for talking about how games makers feel. The mind has that in spades. The thing, One of the things, the mechanics, it, I'm sure it's not new um but it's fairly new hanabi is the first one that i can mm-hmm. think of is not talking to the other players as you yeah. play playing in silence or not being able to discuss yeah. what is going on but actually as i've been saying that um most of the hidden information games like bridge bridge is a team game in which you're not allowed to know what your pl- what your partner's resources are so it's the same principle there um so it's an old idea it's just been tweaked it's been tweaked in and used in a different way. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not aware of I can't think of anything that's really come through strong in the last two or three years that's created that kind of gold rush. Mm-hmm. really good new mechanic yeah. sometimes does
0: speaking of um how to describe the way we feel about games and also the mind, um, uh, asgard, the um the designer of Copenhagen
1: oh yes. Uh,
0: he he uh, wrote in uh, in the magazine. Uh, a couple of issues ago about the mind as his favorite game and he described it as a dance mm-hmm. um, and he said it was like because he felt it felt it he felt like you know you because you can't hear the other person and you're just communicating through looks and Like uh, just an understanding of the other person while doing something together um, That may not be directly impacting each other well, we would be directly impacting each other, but like, is is not codependent on the other person actually understanding what you're about to do. It's, it's mm-hmm. about a. And like, for him, and I think this is a thing that I, I try and articulate a lot, but I, I've obviously never felt that like I've fully done it, which is the game is the bit that happens between the mechanics and the players, like in the air above the board. Uh, yes. Uh, and I talk about it a lot when there's games which I, I feel have a um, uh, scheme mechanic. If you've got, yeah. if there's any any game that feels like you all plan to do something horrible to each other, and then get to act it out in some way, I feel that's that scheme mechanic. That that's one that always gets me. That I always think that that feels great because you are um, you're forced into sort of this tactical thought in some way, no. um, which again similarly and another weird i i feel weird mechanic but you're gonna tell me probably um has been around for um ten thousand years um <laughs> uh, is um uh the uh like uh auction or action programming um, mm-hmm. um, which i i i first came across in rurik um which is a uh like a it's a warro i guess so it's a awesome. area control euro game with a map with little soldiers on it and you you control by majority in an area and you're sure. trying to take over um part of eastern europe uh, in the 10th century um mm-hmm. and and it looks there's a big board with loads of soldiers on it and you look at that and you go that's the game we're playing but it's not it's this tiny little board on the side which is the yeah. action programming where you you have you place ranked ranked uh, advisors that not only have a value for how high up on that Particular track they can go for you to take that action, and therefore it being a better action. Um, but also, they tell you what order you're going to do things in. So, you, so your your lowest number is your uh, the first thing you're going to do. So you have to do this like double double backing of your plan. Um, and yeah, and again, all these things are things that happen plan ahead, and then you you have this feeling over the table with the person you're playing against that you you really are in this like struggle or conflict in some way and. And yet, there's no. You say there's no word to describe what that is. Mm. No
1: Um, word yet.
0: Not yet. No. Well,
1: I I think that's going to be one of the big leaps forward when we mm. we start to talk about this. And there are designers out there. There's the chap who did Fog of Love. I had a fascinating discussion with him a couple of years ago uh, on this this exact subject. Mm. And I think we're both kind of pushing things forward. And there's a bunch of other designers doing the same thing but you're absolutely right the board so often what's happening on it is not what's happening it's a representation of what's happening but the actual action is is happening somewhere else and you know boards and components are increasingly pretty increasingly gorgeous i mean you only have to look at kickstarter to see what sells it's the stuff that particularly looks good um Anything with loads of miniatures in it. Or oh, Hazel, which is just gorgeous. But I had a revelation a few months ago. Which is any game that has a scoring track on it, somewhere on the board, mm. is a race game. Fundamentally, it's yes. a race game. <laughs> you are racing to get as far up the track or to the end of the track first. And everything else you're doing is just to propel your token on the score track as far as it can. It's a race game in which most of what you're going to be doing and your mental energy is on. Getting the points to, and you think that they're tracking the points. No, they're actually it's a race game, um, yeah. and does that affect the way you think about the game? Not necessarily, but uh, in terms mm-hmm. of designing, in terms of a designer's kind of point of view, and the you know the score track is a comparatively recent innovation I mean games like cribbage you know you go to a junk shop and there's probably a cribbage scoring board in there somewhere these things with holes and pegs and I've never played cribbage I' have no idea how those work okay. but in board game terms that tracks back to 1986 um just you know for many of us that's you know living memory um you know was was I growing up in 1986 um yeah I was um I was um
0: i was busy being born oh
1: okay I was Um, Heimlich & Co uh, Wolfgang Kramer's uh, which I may well come back to in a few minutes Yes, Um, delightful rather silly game of of hidden identities and hidden movement Uh, but it introduces two main things to modern board gaming it introduces the score track and the meeple Um, it's one of the very first games to have those flat silhouette wooden counters, they don't look like modern meeples, they're much larger Mm -hmm. but they are not they're not the kind of Either the abstract porn type things, or the th- attempt mm. to do a three dimensional sculpt. They are they are flat wooden pieces, or flat thick wooden pieces about the same thicknesses as modern meeples, actually. And it's just a lovely game. It's a lovely silly game.
0: I suppose we should talk about awards because mm. I, I believe you just mentioned maybe an award-winning game. I did. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be very unlikely that anyone listening to this doesn't know you've written a column for the last. Um,
1: Five years, Something like that. I I wasn't in at the very start of the magazine, but I did start when it was still quarterly um, in the very, very early days. And uh, so, yeah, so I think it's over five years. Um, It's uh, it's been a a bit of a marathon. It's been great, basically running through the the history of the Spiel des Jahres from the first winner, Hare and Tortoise, back in 1979, right up in the latest issue, which I got yesterday. Many thanks for that. Um, Pictures the very latest winner and kind of tracking (laughs) the using that as a way of tracking the development of games over the last 42 years how things have changed how the industry has changed how the design styles have changed how the market and the audience have changed how the how the awards changed. it's been a, a really really interesting exercise to do it's also been a fantastic exercise in expanding my games collection massively and making me play some games that normally i probably wouldn't have tackled um, there's some mm. stuff on the list that normally, just not my, not my usual taste, and a couple of them have turned out to be um, absolutely brilliant um, I was, uh, I'll come on to it later re- blown away by uh, Fernand mm. Taxis, one of the, a minor as gold winner yes. um, but, uh, you know, a game of the German postal system in the 18th century mm. doesn't, was never going to set the world alight um, and isn't terribly highly regarded but it just really enjoyed it. Had a really, really good evening with it with a couple of mates. I've gone back to it a couple of times since.
0: So, obviously, this is the uh, spu- Spudia. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think I'm saying that right. I, don't, I never. never I think that. it's spielen. Um
1: having, having been listening.
0: Oh, is that the bit I've got wrong?
1: Go I, oh, my German is, is appalling. <laughs> and I now work for a, a large European country, and my languages are having to come up to speed really fast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was listening to the. the because they, they live cast the. Um, the award ceremony, uh, I believe, I don't know if it was televised this year, it's certainly been televised in previous years, um, mm. and they seem to be saying Spiel rather than Spiel. Uh, but mm. that may be a regional thing. I have no idea. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> the uh, the Game of the Year Award, awarded in Germany by a panel of German games journalists and commentators, because Germany is the industry and the hobby over there is developed to the stage where you can have full-time journalists and commentators on board games, and um, Hmm. been running 42 years they pick uh, it used to be a single game these days it's three there's the, the game of the year the children's game of the year and the, the expert or connoisseur's game of the year the Kennerspiel hmm. uh, you know Ken you know for those who know the, the, the insiders game of the year you know it's not necessarily the best game um, but certainly it's the most important award in the world which I've said way too many times in, in the column <laughs> Um it's not aimed at hobbyists it's mostly kind of family games it's the kind of family who might buy one two three games a year it's you'll find this interesting so they uh, about almost 20 years ago they spun off the, the hobby game stuff into the kennespiel which is for more of the connoisseurs though it's not really it's very it's not often a what we would consider a heavyweight game usually it's stuff yeah. that you know even a you know reasonably intelligent family could tackle without too much difficulty, kids would be able to get their heads around it. And the Kids Award, which is actually the first one, it's awarded first in the year. Um, Usually something quite lightweight, there's often a dexterity element, brightly colored components. Um, They're always fun. They're always very interesting to to look at. Um, But there have been a couple of years where, what was unarguably the best game of the year did not win, notably 2002, where uh, Puerto Rico, which for a very long time was the top-rated game on BoardGameGeek. And this is before they'd spun off the Kenner spiel. I think as a result of this, they spun off the Kenner spiel. Everyone was just going, it's got to be Puerto Rico. It's, this is a, a game-changing game. It was one of the first great worker placement games. And there's a, another game mechanic there that's really come through in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Or just the concept. Now that we have a name for worker placement, we can start to, to manipulate the concepts around it. But Puerto Rico didn't win, and a thing called Villa Paletti did. Uh, and Villa Paletti mm-hmm. is a stacking game. Now, I love okay. stacking games. Uh, genuinely, one of my great passions. A good stacking game is just a, an absolute delight. And Paletti is not one of my favourites by any means. It's a, <laughs> it's a decent <laughs> stacking game. It is, it's very, very pretty. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, but the play is a little bit limited. Villapletti, for me, is not the game of the year in any year. But in particular, beating Puerto Rico, the jury does make interesting decisions sometimes. I mean, this yeah. year, you had two of the great heavyweight games designers of the last few years up against it. You, you had Rainer Konezia's My City, um, which is a legacy game for families, which is an extraordinary mm. thing, but he makes it work. Um, and that was up against Nova Luna by Uwe Rosenberg, the creator of Patchwork and Agricola again. Note slightly for, for heavier games or uh, more hobby oriented games. And Nova Luna is kind of nodding in that direction. And Pictures by a couple of first-time games designers. And Pictures is an unashamed family game. It's almost in the party game thing where you're you're trying to replicate photos using a variety of household objects that come in the box, like blocks and shoelaces and, and things. And Pictures won. And I would say not only is Pictures not the best game of the year, it is not as good a game, not as interesting a game as either of the two it was up against. But then I've been a hobby gamer for... decades and decades um pictures was not to my taste but i have to say it was also not to my family's taste my kids were quite scathing
0: this is like a trend isn't it we i think something i've identified from from the column is that the games that win are getting lighter and lighter yeah almost feels like um we should have known we should have known it was going to be pictures because there was it felt like maybe there was two um two obvious examples uh it was up against mm-hmm. and then there was a there was a very light nearly party game, and then there was two other games um, from heavyweights that um, Seemed to it seemed too obvious that they were gonna win so we should have known we should have known it, they were they would go lighter and even lighter again yeah. um, When I first got into board gaming I you know uh, in the early 2000s I guess um, Just seeing you sort of you'd sort of identify things and this is before I knew you know, any mechanical names or categorical names for things Um and you say, "Oh, I like I like German style games." Mm. And it's is this a kind of maybe an attempt for the the um, for the jury to try and broaden their reach from just being this German award?
1: I think it could be. I think you're right. I mean, it is it is an award for games published in the German language, and they do champion mm. German games design. It's only been won by two British designers, both in the first five years of the award. Mm. Um, Americans get a look in from time to time, the French, Belgians, um, a few others, but a few Americans. But um, mm. if you look down the list in the last 10 years, it's almost entirely Europeans. Um, the last American, I think, was Quirkle in 2011, uh, Susan McKinley's Ross, Ross's kind of abs- abstract Scrabble, which is doing it disservice. But if you, know, you want a two-word description, uh, Colt Express, French designer, uh, code names, mm-hmm. Czech designer, of course. Um, Bruno Cathal, I don't, I think he lives in Switzerland. I'm not sure, um, but otherwise, <laughs> it's uh, oh, and and uh, just one, I think French designers. But uh, other than that, almost entirely German, and most of them published for the first time in Germany. But it has it swung back and forth between the traditional Euro-style games, and it was to a large extent, or partly at least, the the Spiel des Jahres that helped to bring Euro games to prominence in the '90s and. 2000s not just to the German audience but to a global audience as well because it became a badge of quality and they did anoint an awful lot of the mm-hmm. you know what are now regarded as the great tentpole games the great gateway games Catan Carcassonne Ticket to Ride yeah. Codenames which of course is much more recent um, Dominion as as well Dixit uh, the things that the games that you play as you're getting into the hobby to understand the scope of it and and to understand why it's great as well um yeah, it's they've swung back and forth. Um you had King Domino in 2017, which is a lot of fun but it is a kids game, and then Azul, which is very old school and gorgeous. Then last week, last year it was Just One, which is a party game. It's it's incredibly light. It's a it's one of those word guessing games, but it's the twist on it is it, it's co-op. Um, I have to be nice about it because it's published by another one of the companies in the group that I work for. (laughs) So I can't be too... It is a really nice game, but it is in no way a hobby game. It's... And I'm not... That's not a criticism. It's just a comment. And I think a lot of people thought that it was going to swing back again, that we were going to... You know, they'd nominated two really good games by two really good designers. And my guess is the jury was split between them and it ended up going to the third you know the compromise candidate mm. uh, the theresa may of uh, <laughs> of, um, of of board game candidates well that that is scary <laughs> <laughs> we didn't enjoy it i'm sorry it's um i can see that for certain people and you know some of my friends their families have really enjoyed it uh, but it didn't work for us there's nothing mm. terribly new in there it's just it's kind of dictionary with with bits and bobs and and constraints and a couple of euro game style mechanics in there it's all right yeah
0: so shall we i think we're going to try and do a top five
1: okay do you want me to put these in Uh, order or can i
0: just do well no no, literally no one's ever committed on this podcast to putting them in any order The tabletop gaming game store is open and dispatching orders worldwide. Visit www.tabletopgaming.co.uk to read the reviews and buy the games directly from us. Um, although I will, I will, I do like to make the joke that this is your when, when we come to the last one. I will say, and this is your favourite. <laughs> <laughs> It was like no, absolutely not. Um, so, um, but I think I think we're going to do your top five. Spill the jars, winners. Yeah,
1: yes, um, fantastic. So, uh, um, I'm going to start with the, the the first and the most obvious. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Klaus Teuber's Settlers of Catan, now just known as Catan. Um, yes, <laughs> which you know the Euro game. The the game that brought gaming to I'm not going to say the masses we're not at the masses just yet, but has sold over 30 million copies um, is and is still a joy. I still love playing it. Um, I bought it when it came out in 1995. I bought the very first English edition uh, from Mayfair Games, which you look back at and it's hideous. It's just <laughs> badly <Sorry>. photoshopped <laughs> textures um, and it's dark brown in in an unattractive kind of way. Um, but I took it over to Galecon um, in Ireland. I don't. I'm not sure if Galecon still runs, but it was a fantastic local Dublin area convention. Maybe about a thousand people. Um, and I, I was a guest. Mark Gascoigne, who's now running Aconite for Asmodee, was a guest. I think was it Jervis Johnson from Games Workshop? Could have been Andy Chambers. Somebody from Games Workshop and. The editor, I believe it was the editor of Arcane, a future publishing games magazine in the mid 90s, whose name, I'm deeply sorry if you're listening, completely (laughs) blanking on. Um, And I produced this thing, and we as the guests of the convention basically spent the rest of the convention playing it just over and over again, because everybody's taken all the ideas from Catan and reused them endlessly over the last 20, 25 years. But back then, it felt completely fresh and completely new, and it was combining things in a really interesting way to create new sensations and new ways of enjoying and occupying your mental space. Uh, and as as we were saying, it's not about what's happening on the board, it's what's happening in the space above the board and between the players. Um, I still really enjoying, enjoy it. It's still a really good way of introducing people to what is interesting about Eurogames um it's it's a delight uh, and it has done so much it's, for games as as a field as well
0: yeah this was the second game of this tie I played uh-huh. uh first, first being Carcassonne. Uh oh, Right, yes yeah. Yeah. and uh, so I, went, I came in sort of maybe i reverse parked that <laughs> one but uh uh but but yeah it's um i it is it is obviously an absolute joy and and uh i'm talking to the designer of uh the minecraft game from rames oh, Ramesberger, which i think i think you reviewed. i did review uh, i
1: wasn't keen on it i mean it's an okay like game it. it just doesn't feel like minecraft yeah.
0: yes that that was that, that was the criticism and i think it's it was a good i think it was a pretty good stab at trying yeah together um and he he said uh 'cause uh, every interview I do with people ends up being, um, so what do you think of the state of Euro games by the end of it? Um and uh and he said, uh well I'll tell you that I, I was at a games night the other the other uh, week or month or something uh, and um and at the end of the night someone said, Should we just have a quick game of Catan? <laughs> uh, at the end of the night and he said that he and he thought that that this used to be like a a big game for your whole evening. Yeah. But now for for hobby gamers it's kind of relegated to a palate cleanser. Mm. Um and I think often we we forget how good these games are. Yeah. Um these these just like really solid gateway games that are just good fun to play. They don't take your whole evening and um they just feel good. Mm. You know. Yeah,
1: no I, I agree completely. I would just say as a footnote, um I love the base game, but if you're adding in seafarers mm it's it's just seafarers for me is the icing on on the cake the two together <laughs> with the with the expansion it's just it makes suddenly wool becomes a useful resource uh, which it really isn't <laughs> in the basic game um but uh, i mean i could argue i could argue tedious points on that for, for ages but katana anyway, so that's <laughs> that is not necessarily my number one but it's the first one that comes to mind yeah. um The second one is one I've already mentioned, uh, Heimlich & Co., uh, Wolfgang Kramer, um, in the early 80s... Actually, 1986. um, Kramer was coming through... I think it was his first Spiel des Jahres winner. Uh, It's a light game. It's a family game. It's a game of... uh, It has a whole bunch of different names. Usually in English, it's translated as Top Secret Spies. Um, And the idea is you're trying to... There's a, a... basically it's a, it's a roundle it's a <clears throat> a round track with different houses on and you move you roll dice on your turn and you move some of the pieces on the board that number of spaces mm. but you don't tell anyone what card what characters which of those pieces you are controlling and which you will score for oh, and when one of the pieces lands on the safe marker Uh, to get the secret documents because it has this thin veneer of an espionage theme on it Mm. then everybody scores for the number of the house that they're on except some of the house numbers are negative in a way that never happens in real life and it's it's (laughs) it's from that it's very very quickly becomes very surprisingly strategic as you're trying to work out what pieces the other players are controlling and therefore screw Mm -hmm. them over while at the same time moving pieces in a way that suggests that you are not you know to to conceal what card you've got Mm -hmm. it can happen when the game comes to an end that you reveal all the pieces and discover that the piece that has won is not actually controlled by any of the players. The, the game can win the, oh, can win yeah. the game <laughs> in just a random kind of way. And I've heard gamers go, well, that's just ridiculous. That's a broken... No, it's hysterical. It's yeah, that's I've, cool. I've never seen that happen on the table, not burst out laughing. It's, uh, oh, we all disguised who we were so well that nobody won. It's, uh, it's, you used to be able to pick it up in uh, at Essen for like six quid a copy, and um, I, it's lovely, it's um, a little bit dated, but the core ideas are so clever, and it's fast playing, and you know, no turns take very long. If you're sitting there thinking about stuff, you're playing it entirely wrong. Um, mm-hmm. The third one, again, I mentioned before, uh, Thorn of Texas um, by Andres and Karen Safarth, who designed Puerto Rico. It's I love Ticket to Ride, but I don't actually play it that much. Um, I did actually when I was um, doing the article for Ticket to Ride, I realized I'd never actually played pure Ticket to Ride. I'd only ever played Ticket to Ride Europe and other of the others of the spin-offs, and sat down with a, a couple of mates. and We played the original and it's really tight. It's a tighter game than Europe, than Ticket to Ride Europe. Um, and it is really good, but fundamentally it's rummy. Um, it's a set building game rather than a, you know, again, the, the, the board is a marker for your success rather than the majority of the game is going on with the cards. Um, Thurn Taxis is kind of Ticket to Ride plus plus. It's got all of the things that make Ticket to Ride interesting, but there's extra levels of strategy and planning and resource management. And it's really, you read the rules and go, oh God, this is going to be a nightmare. And actually it's one of those games that just resolves itself in your head really fast. And you work out what you're meant to be doing. Um, It is a shame that it is about the postal system in Germany in the 18th Mm -hmm. century, uh, which is not enormously appealing because the game itself is really nice um it is not a lightweight game uh but if you have played a bunch of ticket to ride and you're after something that's the same but different and you don't fancy picking up yet another version of ticket to ride itself fernan mm. Taxis is really interesting one time town um
0: i'm uh just say I'm, a, I'm at a point where i don't recommend ticket to ride to people anymore i just recommend one of the smaller versions mm-hmm.
1: no i think you're oh, right so i think the, the city versions are really clever they're a really nice Just refinement of the of the basic design.
0: Super fast. You can have you can maybe have like if you're really you're both really on it. If you're doing two players, you can do maybe four games in an hour. And that's you know who
1: that's who's heard of that? Yeah. <laughs> I have to admit, I, I do play ticket to ride, but I tend to play the digital version simply because it's it's mm. faster. Um yeah, you were saying you don't recommend Ticket to Ride as as subtle, the base game to people. I don't. I blow hot and cold on, on train games. Um, I know I have a lot of friends who are absolutely into the 18XX series. I like them. I admire them, but uh, they're not for me. The mm. train game I come back to is possibly the most obscure Spiel des Jahres winner, and this is not me being hipster games designer. This was one of my gate- gateway games in the early 80s, Railway Rivals by David Watts, mm. um, a British winner. And Very nearly. I had the two games that didn't quite make it into the top five are Hare and Tortoise by the other British winner, David Parlett, um, and Hanabi by Antoine Bowser, um, which is a glorious cooperative game of constrained communication, almost a full to the mind. Anyway, they didn't make it. Mm. Railway Rifles does because it's joyous. It's not a modern game by any means. It has been out of print in English since 1985, And that is, it has been out of print in the English language since 1985, and that is an absolute tragedy, because it's a British classic, apart from anything else, and it's a hugely fun game. It's a right-on-the-board game. You have this big map Mm. of whichever territory you're playing in, and on your turn, you draw a bit more of your railway route on it, based on a dice roll, but... Yes, it's, kind of, it's, a, it's very much on the dice. It's a, it's a game from the late 70s. Di- you know, people did not regard dice and randomness as a bad thing at that point. I still don't. Um, but the nice mechanic is somebody rolls the dice and then everybody gets that many points to draw a bit more railway. And certain things like tunnels cost a lot more points. So if it's a low roll, you can't build a tunnel or a bridge um, that round. Um, and you form junctions. So you form this enormous network and that's the first part of the game. And then when... Um, I think it's, I can't remember the exact conditions for the the cutoff, but then you race trains along the networks that build <laughs> two cities are randomly chosen. And anyone who's got part of a, ne- a network or a part of a network connected and goes, right, I'm gonna, I will race for this and you race for points but you can also, if you don't have a complete route yourself, or if somebody else has built a slightly faster one, you can use part of their track and pay them for the privilege. So there's a huge push your luck thing there. You're risking some of your points, you know, if you you win. Um, Mm -hmm. The downside is that the racing is literally all on the dice. It's all on rolling six-sided dice. Um, And that does feel, we're back to snakes and ladders, a bit. But at the same time, it's enormously exciting. Um, it's it's hugely fun. It, it is a little bit primitive by by modern standards. It's also quite collectible. It's hard to find English-language copies. Games Workshop did a, a nice box set in the mid-'80s, and that was the last English-language edition. Um, it is in a need of a redesign, um, or an update anyway, but it ought to be out there. It ought to be in everyone's collections. Because like, like you were saying about... The way people treat Catan these days—it's almost a palate cleanser. It's just—it's there's something very pure about the enjoyment of gaming at the heart of Railway Rivals that I think an awful lot of over mechanistic resource management games—you know—you combine X with Y to get Z, and then you use Z to get to get points. Um, mm-hmm. Railway Rivals is—you roll some dice, and your train goes faster, and that brilliant.
0: <laughs> um,
1: that's four. So uh, my final one is um, Tikal. Wolfgang Kramer and oh. Michael Keesley
0: You know, I did not expect that. I was I was expecting... You know what I was expecting? What were you expecting? Azul. As- I was expecting Azul. I,
1: I really like Azul, um, but I think I almost like Summer Pavilions better. Um, oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, no, there's just there's something about T. Cole that I found... I, I am a Wolfgang Kramer fan. I do think he's, mm. he's really smart. And, I mean... Michael Kiesling, his co-designer on t was the designer of Azul. So you've kind of got the best of both worlds. You've got the kind of the almost abstract, beautiful, crafted mechanics. But then you've also got this exciting, you know, ahead of its time, exploring the Central American jungles. To unearth these these temples in a way that might not be regarded as, as PC these days, though if you go out to places like Costa Rica and Belize, they are literally still discovering these these extraordinary ruined temples and cities in some cases buried deep in the jungles. This is this is an activity that goes on, um, and it's a you reveal the board as it goes on to discover where things are. You unearth pathways. Um, you build up these ziggurat uh, pyramids. Um, there's so much going on. It's really fun. Um, it's beautifully balanced. Um, every decision is an interesting decision, but it doesn't... Turns don't go too long, so it zips around quite nicely. It's l- really nicely balanced. It's gorgeous to play. Really fun, really involving. Um, and it was it was the game where I went from admiring Wolfgang Kramer to going, no, this guy is probably my favourite game designer. Uh, it's... It's just, it's come out again in a, a modern edition in the last couple of years, and it's the first part of what they call the Masks Trilogy, which, to my great shame, I have not actually played. But I like T. so much, and in the original edition, if you can get it. Just a really, really a lovely piece of game's design, and a really lovely game as well. It, 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 enjoyable on, on every level. I find it very difficult to fault T.
0: That is uh, a cracking list. Thank I must you. Say.
1: <laughs> At some point, I'm going to line up all the Spiel des Jahres winners and, and photograph it's, uh, I still have all 42 um, and it's, I'm not sure we're going to fit them in the garden, to be honest
0: no. Oh, I, I mean hopefully you're going to knock them over like dominoes
1: Oh, I have to do that <laughs> I, You Alright, alright if, <laughs> if only for the, the picture of all these games falling on pictures at the very end burying. Crack self
0: Um Cool. So I suppose we should also, if, if you have time... Of course. Um, I suppose we should talk about um, what you're doing these days.
1: Um, I have recently... I'm the annoying bloke. I'm annoying on two levels. <laughs> I got a job during lockdown, having been a university lecturer, games consultant, games designer, editor, tabletop gaming columnist. Um, in the middle of lockdown, I started working for Asmodee. I now run Green Board Games which is Asmodee's only UK-based game design studio. And it's not one that a lot of hobby gamers will have come across because we publish the Brainbox games, which are not hobby games. They are educational games or quasi-educational games aimed mostly at three to ten-year-olds. But they do really well. It's a very strong British brand. Brainbox has been around since 2005. And they were looking for someone to run the studio, and that's me. So, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've... now finding myself back at the heart of the British games industry uh, which is a delight it has been weird onboarding with a a massive company from a shed in South London Um, (laughs) I'm going into the office for the first time on Wednesday and uh, that's going to be really interesting but we're having a lot of fun we're doing a lot of interesting stuff it is just it's just Brainbox for the moment that's uh, that's what we're focused on but you know, I'm hoping that in a year and a half, once the line is stabilized and we've got some cool new releases in the pipeline, then we can start looking at stuff that is, I'm not going to say more hobby games oriented, because Asmodee has so many studios that do hobby games already and do them really well. My reputation in gaming has always been innovation, has always been pushing the envelope of what games can be and what they can do and what they can explore. And we are looking at interesting areas and educational games have been massively under appreciated for a long time the idea that you can learn from games in fact you do learn from games every time you play you learn mechanics you learn how to optimize systems whether you're thinking about doing that or not you are and I think we can take some of that and and tweak it a little bit for, for good um, you know to instill interesting problem-solving techniques ways of thinking about things ways of looking at problems um, so this is not abstract learning necessarily this is not about um, you know the dates of the kings and queens though there's some of that as well and games are really good at that this is much more about kind of um, ways of approaching things ways of ways of looking at problems um making a better you that sounds pretty exciting to me i, I think that's, i really uh, hope it will be
0: yeah i'd love to ask you you know what What's your uh, top secret release coming up? <laughs> uh, but I know you can't. So. It's,
1: I mean, we uh, have a huge top secret release, but I can't tell you because we've not officially announced it yet. Uh, I mean, it's it's huge for Brainbox. Again, the hobby gamers are not going to be interested, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, retailers are. The ones we've told about are are salivating. Excellent,
0: <laughs> lovely. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to plug before we? Uh... Say goodbye.
1: I, I can't think of anything. Um, I don't really have anything out at the moment. Um, I one of the things of working for a large company is that it does curtail the amount of work you can the, in, the kind of the independent work that you can do. Um, I uh, though I have special dispensation to keep working on the um, card game I did once upon a time with Andrew Ril- Ril- Rilston and Richard Lambert. Um, that is still out there. We're still working on expansions for that. And my role play game, The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Uh, which I have just got the rights back to. It was out through Fantasy Flight for three years, and their edition has just gone out of print. I now have the rights back, and I'm thinking about what to do with that next. Um, and I'm, nood- I'm noodling on stuff. I'm noodling on a, a fantasy role-playing game at the moment. I've no idea what I'm going to do with it. I probably can't publish it, but you know, when you've been hanging around games as long as I have, it's very difficult to just stop thinking about games design. Mm. Um And there's a good chance, you know, the more you think about something in one direction, little bits of it will start filtering off. You go, oh, I could use that on this current project that I'm doing over here.
0: Thank you very much for joining us today. It's been
1: fantastic. Really great opportunity to catch up. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tabletop Gaming Magazine podcast. If you like the podcast, tell a friend, leave a review, or subscribe to the magazine. You can do that at tabletopgaming.co.uk. You can find us on Twitter at TabletopMag, on Instagram at tabletop__gaming__magazine, TikTok at TabletopMag, or on our new YouTube channel, which contains tons of new videos, all from our latest virtual event at tabletopgamingmag. Our music is by Body in the Thames. Uh, the song is called Cloud Meetings, uh, and you can pick that up on and you can pick that up on Body in the Thames at Bandcamp.co.uk.